Dautel Felhak, the dawn of night. Was it day? Brennan didn't know. She lay still, not daring to move. Her eyes were open, yet the leaf-covered sleeping sack in which she lay covered her eyes. She couldn't see if the light of day had yet come. She mustn't. All around her and above her, she could faintly hear the whistling of the wind on the autumn branches of the birch trees around their camp. She must wait for the signal, she thought. The bag was situated in a small trench, allowing its top to be level with the ground around it. The top was covered in leaves and branches, and a large log sat beside it, covering the section of the bag over Brennan's feet. Finally it came, floating through the misty air above her. The whistle was strangely ghostly, its note ringing out long and melancholy. Hearing it, Brennan pushed the bag away from her face and gasped in a breath of fresh air. The air was indeed misty, and cold as well. The camp, if one could call it that, lay in the midst of a barren forest. The trees all around were dry and cracked, their long limbs reaching out at one who would tread these paths, and yet there was no true path as those of the broad world were concerned. But for an archist of the high north, these were paths enough. Brennan rolled up the sleeping sack and fixed it to her pack with a length of rope. She slung them over her back and left the area, feet making no sound as she walked over the leaf-covered earth with only the skill that only one of her kind would know. As she walked, the others seemed to slide out of the bushes beside her, two men, each with long brown hair and leather coats. The trio moved silently through the foray of twig-like trees, pursuing the goal of all those of their order before them. Sliding through the trees, the company moved north. It was dusk, thin shadows beginning to creep over the ground, long twig-like branches reaching out at the archists. Abruptly, one of the men stopped, his hand held up in a fist. Davar, what is it? whispered Brennan. Davar's face was etched with sharp cutting lines, the pale light of the fading sun splashing his face in light. In a low, gruff whisper, Davan spoke. Everlays, he stated quickly. The other two quickly spun around in surprise at the man's words. How can you tell? asked Kevin, the other man. Slowly, Davar pointed across the leaf-ridden earth. About two hundred yards away, tucked at the base of a tree, lay a patch of black-stained earth, all leaves and wood, black and rotting. The other two nodded. Looks fresh, whispered Kevin. She's probably still around here somewhere. It's almost night, urged Brennan. We need to set up camp. With that thing running around out here? returned Kevin. Everyone just shut up, spoke Devar sharply in front of them, his thick northern accent cutting through the air. The pair ceased talking. It was getting dark now, and the sun had sunk behind the hills to the west. Carefully, Davar pointed through the trees, out past the rotting plant life. Anyone else would have missed it, but they weren't anyone else. They were trained archists of the high north, and they didn't miss anything. About four hundred yards out, a pair of yellow eyes gleamed in the, glowing, in the growing darkness. Suddenly they blinked and were lost from view as the creature turned away from them. It didn't matter. They knew it had seen them. Stay still, whispered Devar. She already knows we're here. Move slow, on the ground. She wasn't hungry. In fact, she felt quite refreshed. She had eaten not two hours ago. All the same, she had to kill the archists. There was no question about that. But she wasn't stupid. She knew they weren't asleep or dead. It would be a trap. And she knew what they would do. They were archists. And that's what archists did. Kill her kind and move north.
She was here to protect the North. Not just the High North, as they called it, but the true North. North of everything. She was an Everlier, and her kind was almost gone. It would be a trap, and she knew it. But she couldn't afford to let them move farther north. If they got past her and she lived, he would give her a mark. She didn't want a mark. The Archess had to die. Her yellow eyes flashed, and she padded forward, white paws softly patting the leafy ground beneath her. She stopped short, ten yards from where the three lay. It was dark now, but she could see them clearly. Their dark forms splayed out beneath the great roots of a large oak tree. All right, that's how they wanted to do it. She could play games. She padded forward directly into the center of the triangle. The arches sprung, silver knives gleaming in a pale shaft of moonlight. They were standing in an instant, knives out, faces cold. They began to circle the Everlier, chanting in low voices, Tred jivaz in bone, ud mood nak nunatas, treads makalas uk kar, let kalem doors of a demaktur, tredak arches of a let vabo nom, ta uk dalakasta. At this, the three arches lunged forward, blades of pure silver shimmering. They stabbed, but she was gone, her shining coat flickering away beneath their knives. The chant hadn't worked, the circle wasn't sealed. But before this, th this thought could process within their minds, she was upon them from behind. Long fangs sinking into the flesh of their next. Brennan was the last to fall. She felt herself sinking, her body going numb as the poison coursed through her veins. The bite of an Everlier, she thought. What a fitting way to die. An Everlier's bite is its most dangerous weapon, read Morgan. Among other things, an Everlier's fangs are filled with a deadly venom capable of killing humans in around five seconds. Little is known about the Everlier's purpose, or what their intent is. While in many cases Everliers have been known to openly attack, they seem to be moderately peaceful until their territory is invaded. The most interesting question, unknown about this marvelous species of the High North, is the question of their intelligence. From what Arches have reported, they seem to be extremely territorial. In addition, Everliers are exceedingly resourceful, tracking and hunting prey in utter silence. As reported by High Arches Galor Baron, the Everliers seem to guard the High North beyond a line which has become to be known as the Border. No Archist has successfully returned from a move past the Border. The ancient or order of the Archists of the High North continue to, to develop methods of hunting down Everliers, yet all methods tried have yielded no access to the true North, as it's being called. Morgan closed the book. His fingers were cold. Placing the book at the feet, at his feet, Sir Morgan Kethfar blew hot air over his freezing hand, rubbing them together in the cold light. He placed his fingers next to the light of the lantern, but it made little difference. The night was silent, save for the howling wind. He cleared his throat and yelled out into the darkness. The ring of his voice was his only comfort in the black night. He peered down of the gate wall. Damn his father's absence, he thought. Grimacing, Sir Morgan pulled his furs tighter about himself and sat back down on the wooden stool he had been seated on. Down below, behind him, blinked the small lights of the tiny village stationed by Calliope's north gate. Damn him, he thought once more. He belonged in Callio with his brothers, not stationed at the north gate like some common peasant. He looked down to find his freezing hands clenched in fists. Slowly, he forced his fists to retract although the tendons in his hands seemed sooner to crack than yield to his brain's constant urging. Looking to his right, over the village once more, Morgan spotted the small light of a lantern steadily approaching the base of the gate upon which he sat. 
Taking a deep breath, Sir Morgan stood and peered over the edge, his hands gripping the thin metal railing of the wall top. Who's there? he called out. But he couldn't be sure the stranger had heard him over the howling wind. The light soon disappeared at the base of the gate wall as the figure took the winding staircase to the gate top. Morgan sat in silence, eyes fixed on the top of the stairwell, waiting for the figure to appear. It seemed an age before the stranger reached the top. He was old, white hair flowing down his back, his features obscured by a wispy white beard, long and reaching almost to his waist. The end was fastened with a silver ring which twinkled in Morgan's lantern light. The man moved slowly, feet thumping heavily on with each, stuk, uh, each step he trod on. Sir Morgan Kethar, he questioned. Tis I, replied Morgan. What news? Ah, yes, spoke the man, moving forward slowly, a long robe dragging beneath him. Your father has returned from Duman. Well, at least he hadn't gotten himself killed, thought Morgan. But damn him all the same. Has he called for me? asked Morgan. I know no more than I have said, answered the man, but he's left this for you, he said, pulling a long scroll of parchment from his sleeve. Handing the paper to Morgan, the man bowed and took his leave, shuffling off down the stairwell. Morgan waited a long while after the man had gone before looking, at the, looking down at the rolled paper in his hand. The scroll was sealed with the emblem of Calliopa, the gray bird of the bright woods, perched upon a branch of the yellow spruce tree, a signature of the country. Morgan stared at the seal for a moment before breaking it and unfurling the parchment. He sighed in relief. His father had used the code. He had been afraid the old man might secretly have found the letter, considering how eager he had been to depart. Fortunately, it had been written in the code. Morgan, he read translating the sharply etched, uh, the sharply scratched encoded letters common of the Kethvar Code, as his father once called it. There were only five people in the world who could read it, and Morgan was one of them. I know you wish I hadn't gone, but we need King Hradas's army. I've just returned to Calio. I know you wish to come home, but you mustn't. But believe me, the gods know better, and remember to trust your old grandfather. Signed, Dracon. Morgan's eyebrows furrowed. He read the last two sentences once more. But believe me, the gods know better, and remember to trust your old grandfather. They were codes, clues. This confused Morgan. Why would his father have to include encrypted clues when he was already using the code? He was being extra careful. He didn't want to, he didn't trust anyone. At this thought, as this thought passed through his head, the final line clicked. And remember to trust your old grandfather. That was an old expression that meant don't trust anyone. The old grandfather was dead, so trusting him meant trusting no one. Realizing this, Sir Morgan's heart began to pound. Suddenly, the other half of the clue hit him. The gods know better. His father didn't worship any gods. The gods' junction, he thought, remembering the phrase from his childhood. The gods' junction was what the Calliopians called the spot where the bleak river hit the Xandar, the waters combining in a screaming crash of swirling waters so powerful it was given the name. Morgan ripped the paper into paper shreds and opened the lantern side. He tossed the paper in and allowed it to burn in the oil. Closing the lantern, he grabbed the handle and gathered his cloak about him. He sprinted to the tower top. He sprinted from the tower top, shoes smacking on the stone steps of the stairwell. The name had been signed in red, Morgan thought. Red meant war. The sun should be rising. Sir Morgan Kethfar rode hard, 
his heels digging into the sides of his chestnut mare. The sun should be rising, he thought. He had taken the longer road to the God's Junction, deciding to head out of the north gate and follow the bleak to the place. But he had ridden for nearly five hours. The sun should be rising. But it wasn't. Not even the slightest glare or flicker in the eastern sky. Yet it wasn't pitch dark, just a deep shade of gray. He could see, but just well enough not to ride into the river. It was near an hour more before the dread hit him. He had not slept all night, and the drowsiness had just barely worn off. But as it did, the simple fact that the sun hadn't risen filled him with terror. It was then that he reached the junction. It was unearthly how the crashing water had managed to sneak up on him. As he rounded the last bend in the river, he came out from behind a tree and had his first sight of the God's Junction and Calliope's south gate towering above the crashing tumult. He stopped short. And finally, the dreaded truth crashed over him like one of the waves. The sun would not be rising. He stared at the red water, the blood-red water. The sun would not be rising. Only night would ensue. The dawn of night was upon him.